Well, welcome once again to Redeemer. If you have been with Redeemer at all, you know that one of uh, the things that we love to do most in the world is to dream of what it looks like when God gets a hold of a person, when God gets a hold of a community, when God's work begins to, to fill out into the, the fa- very fabric of society around us. And that's what we dream for here in Midtown, in our little corner, as God moves through us. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this Sermon on the Mount, this sermon that Jesus preached to his followers uh, here in the Gospel of Matthew. And it is perhaps uh, just like Redeemer, right? It's this one audacious revolutionary dream after another, one audacious revolutionary teaching after another as, as he looks at what would happen in the lives of humans and the lives of communities if and when they are transformed by God's goodness. And so he goes through all variety of things, but here in this text, on this day, we come to what might be his most audacious what might be his most revolutionary teaching that he preaches in this sermon, and it is one that you've heard quoted many times, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Don't just love your neighbors, but love your enemies as well. And the application for that teaching is enormous and it is broad and it has led throughout history to some of the most breathtaking displays of mercy and forgiveness, right? It's compelled and emboldened revolutions of love and care in the world. It's a truly revolutionary teaching. But our job this morning is the same job that we have every Sunday morning, and that is to look at what God has given us in his word and ask the question, what is he leading us towards here and now? And of course, today I'm recording this sermon for October the 11th, the week when uh, the polls will open here in Memphis. At the very climax of a, of a presidential uh, election when we have seen all sorts of debates and we have seen fever pitch level uh, language and, and posturing, right? T- today, as we look at this text, today as we read to love our enemies, we can't help but try to figure out what that means for us in our political lives, And so our task, our charge as we read this text today is what does it look like to love our political enemies? And the reason is it's pretty obvious that we're in trouble, right? I mean, you watched that quote unquote presidential debate a couple weeks ago, right? We can't even talk to each other. You have watched as our government through partisanship and political maneuvering has has so crippled themselves that they they can't even provide some of the most basic functions of government to to provide for their people, to organize for their care and access, right? To, To build and maintain infrastructure. We can't talk, the government can't work, but it's not just that we can't agree with one another, we can't even be friends with one another. I read a poll this week um, from the, the Pew group, right? The, 
and it was saying that they discovered in a poll that, that 75% of Americans or just over 75% of Americans have zero or just a few close friends who they anticipate will vote for the other candidate, whoever the other candidate is uh, for that person, right? Our division, our discord has broken down even to the point where we can't apparently even be friends with those who disagree with us. And of course, this has led to a flood of calls for change, right? Even as I like uh, Googled my little passage here today, I got all these uh, articles, right? From everything from the Atlantic and the New York Times all the way to, to blogs and Twitter accounts and, and Facebook posts, right? All citing this verse as they called for civility, right? As they called for a renewed dialogue, as they called uh, for a, a new social trust to be built between us, right? As they attacked this uh, pandemic of contempt, as one author put it, right? One author targets our problem as being an obsession with anger or uh, that we have an obsession and a love affair with being outraged in us versus them, And I promise you, as we read this today, we're not going to be able to fully untangle that knot. Nor, as we read this text, will we be able to provide some sort of comprehensive uh, Christian ethical guide to how you live and act and engage in a political world that we live in. We're not going to try to build an ethical model of how to decide who to vote for. But as we read Jesus' teaching this audacious teaching, this revolutionary teaching, I believe that we are discovering what could be the most potent weapon, right? The most transformational, the most revolutionary, the most audacious Christian teaching that could bring life and flourishing in our world in this political moment that we live in. And that is that we are called to love our political enemies. And so our plan here for this sermon is is pretty simple. We're gonna take that phrase, we must love our political enemies and we're gonna break it up, right? We're gonna ask first, who are our enemies, right? Then we're gonna ask, what is it that we owe to our enemies? Spoiler alert, it's love. And then last, we're gonna ask, why does it have to be this way? So first, who are our enemies, And I asked this question because as I looked at those articles, as I skimmed through the variety of opinions of how to fix this broken political world that we came to, even as they quoted Jesus's words, often what they were referring to was not a love of enemies, but a love of those, of people who disagree with you, right? There's a difference between saying an enemy and saying people who hold a different opinion than you, not saying that I don't, I, it's important for us to love those who just disagree with us as well, but the word enemy means something a lot more harsh, right? Jesus, in his teaching here in verse 45, he calls them evil people. In verse 44, he refers to them as those who persecute you. So it's kind of trite to, to, to talk about fixing our world with some sort of simple civility or some sort of simple kindness, 
No, Jesus is teaching is targeting something much more grand and much more specific. And when he says to love your enemy, he has something much more revolutionary in mind. You can see this dynamic uh, if, if you were paying attention back in January, right, at the National Prayer Breakfast, a, uh, a Harvard professor uh, gave the kind of the keynote speech or, or sermon or, or whatever, devotional, whatever you would call it there at the, the prayer breakfast. And his text was, love your enemies. And in it, he, he called for the end of this contempt that we have for one another. He, he called for this renewed energy to that we could disagree with one another. And then President Trump got up after him and, <laughs> and he says, Arthur, I don't know if I agree with you. Meaning on love your enemies, which of course was Jesus's words, not Arthur's, Right. He said, as everybody knows, my family, our great country, and your president have been through a terrible ordeal by some very dishonest and corrupt people. They've done everything possible to destroy us, and by so doing, very badly hurt our nation. They know what they are doing is wrong, but they put themselves far ahead of our great country. Apologize for not having a very good Trump impression, so I just skipped it. Okay. Right, but if you remember, this prayer breakfast happened the day after the Senate voted on his impeachment trial. And you may not agree with President Trump's uh, memory of history in this event. In fact, for you, you may uh, be looking at Trump's words. And, and in fact, what you picture in your mind when you think of somebody who has done dishonest and, and corrupt things, in fact, it may be him, right? That's the nature of politics is we both accuse one another of the same things. But what President Trump, and what I love about this is I think this might be, I'm not a person who tends to be, um, find President Trump to be very relatable. Okay, but I think what he's saying here is enormously relatable for all of us. Right, This guy comes up and he pontificates about saying, love your enemies. But President Trump stands up and says, from the angle I'm standing at, those people attacked me. Those people voted to cast me out of office. Those people instigated and pressed for inv investigations and charges. Those people hurt my reputation. Those people attacked me. Those people are my enemies. Rule number one, rule number one of, of our hard wiring says you do not look out for those who are your enemies. So maybe the prayer breakfast may not have been the place for him to disagree with Jesus, but I think it's a very honest and I think it's very relatable. An enemy is someone who tries to take something from you. An enemy is somebody who tries to hurt you. Look here in this passage. As Jesus talks about the need to love those who are attacking you, look how he sets the stage. In verse 39, he says, if someone uh, slaps you on the right cheek, turn, turn to him the other also. Now, Jesus isn't here specifically referring to a physical attack as much as a public insult. 
in his culture to smack somebody on the cheek was the highest public insult, the highest way of denigrating their reputation that you could possibly do. So when Jesus brings this to mind, he is saying that there are people who will try to strip you of your reputation. Then he goes and he says, if someone would sue you, right, to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's obviously not very common practice to be suing for someone's clothing garments. What Jesus is pointing out here is is if someone who has sued you for all that you're worth down to your shirt, down to your last inalienable right in Jewish culture was your cloak because your cloak is your last defense against the elements, right? It's it's what someone cannot sue for you for. The, The cloak is what somebody can't take away from you. What Jesus is saying is that even if somebody comes after your very human rights, You're not to respond in like fashion. Verse 41, he says, if a Roman soldier comes and he obligates you to carry his pack for a mile, you don't take offense, so much offense at him stripping you of your freedom that you forget how to show him love. Finally, he says, if someone comes to you and begs from you or asks to borrow money from you, if somebody comes for your money with what is presumed to be no intention of paying you back, those are the people I want you to have in mind. Those people who would take your reputation, those people who would take your rights, your freedom, your money. As we look at our political arena, politics aren't neutral. No matter how kind you like to think about politics, no matter how rosy you like to think of your life, the stakes are real. People are actually getting hurt. In all likelihood, you are getting hurt to some form or fashion. When the way that that we engage with one another leads your family to write you off with such condescending and belittling remarks, right? When you uh, are terrified to put a sign in in your yard because you don't know what your neighbor's response to you will be. Right when we're in the midst of a global pandemic and the, the ability to, to care for, our, for one another is stripped and taken away because of, of how the, the problem was managed or because of how the, the interventions were politically postured, we see that how we do politics has real impact on one another. We're really getting hurt, which means we have real enemies. Right when, uh, when we watch on our screens as uh, Judge Amy, Amy Coney, Coney Barrett, excuse me, his picture is imposed on a Handmaiden's Tale poster, we wonder if it's safe to be people who who follow a religion. Right when President Trump. Uh, waffles and, and, and co- says confusing remarks when he's asked to condemn white supremacists. Our, our sisters and brothers of color are justifiably afraid. They're justifiably worried. They're justifiably terrified. There are real enemies and real damage that are being done in our world today. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. 
So when we, Jesus comes to us and he says, love your enemies, we have real enemies that are at stake. So don't try to belittle our political problems down to niceties. Don't try to belittle our political problems down to, to, to trite disagreements or civility. If we're gonna disrupt these cycles of, of despair, if we're gonna try to work to repair them, it will take something, take a lot more than civility and niceness. It will take the transformation that Jesus is teaching to love your enemies. So who is your enemy? The enemy is the person who wants to harm you or will harm you. But what do we owe to that person? How do we respond to a person who wants to take our rights? How do we respond to the person who wants to take our freedom? How do we respond to the person who wants our money and our reputation? Well, Jesus says we respond to them with love, with love. You see, we're hardwired for vengeance and retaliation. That's why when Jesus begins, he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is an ancient teaching that was found actually in many cultures at the time, right? Because it, it, it acknowledged that, that you as a human, when you are hurt, when someone comes after your freedom, when someone comes after your money, that you're gonna respond, right? You're gonna retaliate. You're gonna seek some sort of revenge, okay? And this teaching, which is found in the Old Testament and elsewhere, is, is a sort form of restraining that, right? It's saying, okay, but when you come for your payback, you can only take as much as they took from you, right? Because human nature is as if, if you take my eye, I wanna take your head. That's how we normally act, Right, it's the taste of revenge that, that is so, what did, I think Matt, Matt preached a few weeks ago, he says, it's delicious. We savor being angry, we savor retaliating. And so God had given his people a law like this that says, listen, if someone takes an eye, you can only take the equivalent of an eye back. You can't wound them, you can't attack, you can't denigrate them down, so you can't kill them, right? You can't take more than they took from you. But Jesus here in this teaching is explicitly saying, you have heard that it was said, that's all you could do. But he's saying, but that's not enough. That's not enough in Jesus's world where he sees the truth of God inhabit humans. It's not enough that we merely restrain ourselves from from destroying our enemies. Jesus is saying that we must treat them as God treats them. Hear what he said. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, God in this time and in this place has chosen to withhold final judgment from those who are evil because he wants to give them time so that they can turn, so that they can be humbled, so that they can find new life. And so God is saying that the way he treats those who are evil in our world is that he is patient. 
and that he is slow to anger even the righteous kind of anger, that he does not pour out his wrath upon them. And if that is how God loves the evil, that is what we're called to as well. So when this last week, when President Trump was diagnosed with COVID, right? And many of those who wished him ill will gloated and gloried that he got what was coming to him. They gloated over his sickness. They gloated over the potential of his death. What they were seeking for was revenge. What they were seeking for was payback. What they were seeking for was his destruction. But that's not what God has called us to. God is not one who glories in the death, even the death of an evil person. So we don't just, uh, so we, like God, withhold our vengeance and we withhold our anger. And that means that we're not gonna be a kind of people who slander and make false accusations against our politicians or against our friends with whom line up with those politicians. Lord, help me with this one. Because if you are like me, when you are around a group of friends who you think all will be voting the same way you do, whose views of American politics line up with the way you think about politics, it becomes very, very easy to to spout off conspiracy theories, to spout off gross generalizations, to... to, to, uh, frame and characterize people's political positions in ways that they would never agree to. But if you're going to love your enemies, then you need to not try to take those cheap shots. What instead you need to do is you need to represent them with truth and with love. We don't delight in their failures and we don't pull our lives and our relationships away from them. We do not punish those who have done us evil. Instead, we seek to love them. But when God sends rain on the unjust, when he makes his sun rise on the evil, he's not just restraining vengeance, he's blessing them with good. I printed in the front of your bulletin this week a a pretty long series of quotes here from a sermon that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached back in the 1950s. And it's a striking sermon in in any variety of fashions. And in fact, you should look up the entirety of, of the manuscript. But what struck me most about it is that as he preached about love your enemies, he says a lot of, of, of audacious things here at the very end, but, but this is what he says at the very end. One day, after he's told them, you can throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we will still love you. Send hooded perpetrators of violence into our community and we will still love you. He says this, but one day we shall win freedom but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will then be a double victory. You see, even those people who were violently attacking, violently oppressing 
uh, our black brothers and sisters in America, he sought their good. He sought their blessing. He sought their turning from their sin and finding new life in Christ. It's an astonishing series of sentences. More astonishing if you look at his life and that he actually believed it. You see, if, if MLK is reading Jesus rightly, and I think he is, and what he's saying is, is that even when those who seek your political harm, even those who smear you on Facebook, to those who, who institute oppressive policies against you and your family, whatever the case may be, you are called to, to seek their good. You're called to operate with the goal of restoring them to health and freedom. So that will, of course, mean that you will pray for what is good and what is beautiful in them to come out, that little image of God that's in them to be revealed. And you'll pray for their well-being, but you'll also pray for truth to be known. You'll pray for them to be humbled. You'll pray for them to find accountability. You'll pray for them to find truth. But there's a world of difference between praying that someone is humbled so that you can gloat over their, humili- their humiliation and praying for someone to be humbled so that they can find what is true. If you are going to live in America today, if you are going to pray for our president today, if you're gonna pray for our next president today, you need to be willing and ready to pray for those who have hurt you, to pray for those who have lied about you, to pray for those who have done evil against you, but pray for them to flourish in God's economy, for them to to be brought to repentance and to be brought to new life. Can you imagine that kind of love? Can you imagine the difference that that would make? Finally, and I'll, I'll close here with this last point. We want to ask, why does it have to be this way? Because if we're honest, we can see that it's a pretty impossible task that's been placed in front of us. It's pretty impossible to, to reverse when those who have spoken evil and, 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 and slanderous things against you and your kind and against your neighbors and against their kind, right? It's pretty impossible to look at them with love. But if, and if you don't, if you're listening to me today and you don't know Christ, let me just give you a shortcut. This is a kind of transformation you can't bring into your own life. This is the kind of transformation that can only come when Jesus himself enters into our life and he, he transforms our desires, he transforms our loves, he transforms our, knee, our, our outlook on the world. You see, when Jesus tells his his disciples here that you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's not saying you must be perfect and then God will be your father. He's saying you have a father in heaven who has already transformed you. Why does it have to be this way is because that's the way your father is. If you are a child of God, you cannot help but to look like him. 
I come from a family where if I were to, to go up to Peoria, to my hometown, and if I was to try to go unrecognized as my father's son, as my brother's brother, as my grandfather's grandson, I would literally have to put on a disguise so that people couldn't see my bald bald pattern in my eyes, right? They couldn't see my stature. I would have to mask my voice with a fake accent because they could hear the intonations of my father's voice in my voice. Even here in Memphis, I haven't lived in the same city as my brother in like 18 years, okay? And there are still people who come up to me because my brother lived in this area at one point and they're like, you must be Tony's brother. You sound just like him. And if that's true in my natural family, what the Bible's ethic tells us is that it's so much more true of God. What he's saying is, is that if, if you are your father's son, your heavenly father's son, that all the ways that you don't look like him are the disguise, right? It is, it is your greed and your selfishness that is the, uh, you know, the, the wig that you put on to cover your face. It's pride that has disguised and morphed your voice so that people don't see God's love and compassion. It's your anger that's the clown costume that you've put on. Well, we often look at it and we say, no, I can't help but be angry. I can't help but be prideful. I can't help but look out for myself. Well, God says, what's truest about you, the truest, true, the truest you is the one who is free from your anger, who is free from your gride, who is free from your pride and can live in honesty and truth. And that's what Jesus is dreaming for us here in this passage that we would be a people that is freed from our self-protection, that is freed from, from the, the slavery of retaliation and instead can be the kind of people that resemble the love and the compassion and the patience of our Father as we seek the good, not just of our neighbor, but also of our enemies. This week, as you go to, some of you will go to cast your vote. The most important thing you do, the most impactful way that you will love our neighbors through the political process is probably not gonna be the ballot you cast. It's probably going to be the way that you treat and respond to those who are your political enemies. Let us be the kind of people where our enemies can see the love of Jesus in us, even as they attack and take from us. Pray with me. God, I pray that you, we would be a people who is transformed by your love, a group of people who is made new in you. Give us a love that feels unnatural to us, but is natural in you. Give us a love for those who hate us. Give us a love for those who despise us. Give us a love, a love even for those who hurt and take from us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.